Well, good morning. It is great to have you with us today as we worship together and as we explore the idea that God might just be a foodie. So thanks for joining us online, for those who are watching and those who are uh, just experiencing uh, the Bible and community in a different way. We just welcome you for being here today. If you've been through Numbers with us, like I said, we are taking a break from it, but it's amazing how even food is used in the book of Exodus and Numbers. The people come out of Egypt and God uses a Passover meal of lamb and matzah to teach them how to trust in him. During their wandering in the book of Numbers, we're going to learn that God uses manna every day, the collecting and baking of manna to teach them how to experience dependence on daily bread. We're going to find their need for water. We're going to find during a time of discipline, he sends them quail hail from on, on high and tells them to eat it until it comes out their nostrils for discipline. At the rebellion of Korah, we're going to find that the people long for Egypt and specifically mentioning, oh, bondage was so good, but we got to eat garlics and leeks and cucumbers. So food has always been a part of God's plan for teaching us discipline, teaching us dependence, teaching us how to flourish and enjoy who he is. Even a pizza matzah, for example, is a reminder that he was pierced for our transgressions. The color of matzah, he was bruised for our iniquities. So before Margaret comes and joins us today for a little journey through the Bible and through food, let me show you a little clip where she explained a few years ago how matzah is made and what it's all about. Hi friends, today you are in for a treat because Jess and I, we're gonna make matzah. Now, matzah is an unleavened bread that commemorates the Israelites leaving Egypt in such a rush that they didn't have time to allow their bread to rise. And so to make this bread kosher, we only have 18 minutes. I know, right? That's so fast. It is. And from the time the water hits the flour until the bread is removed from the oven, 18 minutes. Now I'll explain more of the details about that 18 minutes okay. in the teaching. All right, you got this. One of the adventures that I took was to study bread in the Bible. And since I was with an expert on ancient grains, he chose two flowers that were used by the Israelites, barley and emmer. Now it is time to pop those in the oven at 450 degrees between four to five minutes. And so there's just a hint, barely a hint of brown. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, rush to it. Okay, Jess, that smells fabulous and amazing. We hit the 18 minute mark with seconds to spare. Just barely. And I'm excited about how this recipe is gonna help us better understand bread in the Bible. So today we're gonna to look at uh, some grapes and some wine and some olive oil. Can we give a warm horizon welcome to Margaret Feinberg? Thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, thank you. It is such a joy and delight to be here. And just to be honest, it wasn't easy getting here. We had consistent delays on all of our flights and we arrived, we had no baggage. And so we ran around last night and I typed in Maggiano's to find a mall. And I didn't know, like stores close early now. And when you go in them, they don't have all the sizes. So it was an exciting night, but it is a joy to be with you this morning. A number of years ago, I was living in my home state of Colorado when I got a call from my aunt up in Sitka, Alaska, that my uncle had gone out scuba diving and when he came to the surface, he was dead. 
turned her world upside down and she desperately needed help from someone in the family with her bed and breakfast. And being one of the only people in the family with a flexible schedule, I traveled up to Sitka, Alaska to help my aunt for several summers. And while I was there, I met several unforgettable people, one of whom was a tall, strapping Alaskan by the name of Leif. You see, I was signing books in a church cafe and he noticed me, but I didn't really notice him because I'm a lot like Dory from Finding Nemo. Hi! But I eventually caught on to the fact that wherever I went in Sitka, there was life. And so that might have been a little uncomfortable, disconcerting, downright creepy. Except that in Sitka, Alaska, there's only 14 miles of road end to end. This is one of those tiny towns where you see the same people in the gas station, the post office, the grocery store. This is a town so small that when people register for their weddings, they register at true value. And so everywhere I go, I keep running into life. And we become friends, and we're really starting to build a relationship. And after only knowing him five or six weeks, it's time for me to return to Colorado. But before I do, he sits me down, he looks me in the eyes, and he says, Margaret, I would like to ask you to consider moving to Alaska to pursue a relationship to become my wife. I remember thinking, wow, way to let it all hang out. And then, ooh, I am so not moving to Alaska for a boy. I mean, they make movies out of people who do things like that. <laughs> Starring Sandra Bullock. <laughs> so I pack up, I return back to Colorado, and Leif keeps calling and pursuing. And a few months later, I remember my cousin was getting married off the coast of Washington and my mom had come in for the wedding and Leif had come in a few days before and for the first time we all shared a meal. And at the end of that meal my mom looked at me and she said, Margaret, this guy is amazing and you are a fool if you don't give this relationship a chance. And so I listened to my mom, I packed up, I moved to Alaska and 10 months later I married my stalker. But the other unforgettable person that I met in that bed and breakfast, first of all, let me just pause for a second. I want to show you a, a picture of my hubby, who I love so much. And this is him. And if you can't tell, he's six foot eight, and I'm five foot six. And so when he puts on his cologne, he puts it on down here. And I'm like, honey, you smell so good. <laughs> but the other unforgettable person that I met at that bed and breakfast was one of the guests and her name was Lynn. And one morning over hot scones and coffees, we were talking and she started to describe her taking care of sheep. And as she did this, I instantly had some Bible passages flutter through my mind. And as we're talking, we just kind of built this rapport and this relationship. And eventually she invited me to go and spend time with her and her flock outside of Portland, Oregon. And that one breakfast and that one meeting and that one encounter actually changed the course of my spiritual life. Because through her and her flock, I was introduced to the agrarian world of the Bible. In other words, the Bible was primarily written in an agricultural world. And everyone was so in touch with, with the survival and the seasons and the sun and the wind and the rain and the way that everything grew because they were so dependent on it. 
And as I started to look in the scripture, what I began to notice is that if you actually look in the Bible, it is like food pops and sizzles on almost every page. From the opening of creation, we discover that God opens the world like a heavenly buffet where the Adam and Eve nosh and nibble as they pass through the garden on pomegranates and passion fruit. Often the prophets are the one who draw on food imagery, and when Jesus comes, he reveals himself as basic food stuff, the bread of life and the true vine. All the way to the closing of Revelation, where we discover that God has already been issuing invitations to the biggest, best banquet of all time, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And with so many mentions of food in the Bible, I knew that I needed to narrow my search. And so I began to identify six different foods of the Bible and began to seek out the people who plant and process and procure them. And not big, large manufacturing, technological kind of huge growing industries, but rather individuals who had almost an artisanal flair, who cared very much about the quality of the soil, the care of the animals, the quality of what they were producing. And this journey led me to go fish in the Galilee, to go study figs with America's foremost fig grower in Madera, California. I even tracked down the head of the Yale Divinity School, cold called him, introduced myself because he happened to be an expert on ancient grains and invited myself to his house for an afternoon to bake bread because that's what normal people do and serial killers. I even went down to McKinney, Texas, where I studied under a butcher who called himself the Meat Apostle. And I graduated from a Steakology 101 course. And with each of these individuals, I opened up the scripture and I asked, how do you read this, not as a theologian, but in light of what you do every day? And their answers changed the way that I read the Bible forever. Time and time again, I found myself asking, how have I grown up in the church? How have I listened to so many sermons? How have I studied the Bible so long, listened to so many podcasts? And nobody had told me these things. This journey became the foundation for a book and a Bible study called Taste and See, Discovering God Among Butchers, Bakers, and Fresh Food Makers. Why Taste and See? Because, friends, we are living in an increasingly toxic, polarized, divisive world, and more than ever, we need to rise up as the people the psalmist calls us to be, that we would taste and see that the Lord is good and bring the flavor of heaven down here to earth everywhere we go. So today, I just wanted to highlight two foods, almost like an appetizer in this journey of taste and see. And the first is one that is pretty common, and that is the grape. Now, did you know that if you actually start to look for grapes and vines and vineyards in the Bible, you will discover almost 500 references. We read in the book of Genesis that shortly after Noah got off of the ark, he fell off of the wagon. He planted a vineyard and he drank too much. Throughout the Old Testament, we see many of God's greatest leaders, Solomon, David, Uzziah, Isaiah, all either taking care of vineyards or having people take care of them for him. Throughout the Old Testament, we also see the prophets often using vine and vineyard imagery, which is intriguing because the Bible makes it explicitly clear that drunkenness is forbidden. So why would God use the prophets and vine and vineyard imagery? 
Well, it's interesting because modern archaeologists in Israel have found that in the ancient plots of land, often there are traces of vines in the land near where the homes were. And and so it would be the equivalent of God using the very plants that we grow in our own yards to communicate his heart to us. When I think of all of the passages of vine and vineyard imagery, none is more potent than that found in John chapter 15 where Jesus takes on this imagery for himself. And he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you, unless you abide in me. I, I am the vine. You, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Nada, zilchamundo. Well, in order to understand this passage, I traveled to Napa Valley, California, and I spent time with a boutique vintner by the name of Christoph. And as we began diving into this passage, I began seeing some things that I'd never seen before. Because you see, if you look at this passage, one of the primary themes that comes forward is the image of pruning. And I don't know about you guys, but when somebody starts to talk about pruning, I'm kind of doing the moonwalk to the back of the class. I'm like, you all can go first. Because when I think about pruning, the image that I have in my mind growing up in the church is that like there's this long machete and here I am and I am this vine and it's like God's going to come along and he's going to go whack, that doesn't belong there, whack, that's an area of sin, whack, 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 until I am this short little stubby thing and maybe, just maybe, God can do something with me then. And when I described this to Christoph, he looked at me and he said, Margaret, That is not how we prune vines in Napa Valley. And he pulled out on this picture here, a picture of these little teeny pruning shears. And the blades were only this big. And I thought, man, what are those? Are those cuticle clippers? They're so small. And he began to describe how as a boutique vintner, he would go through the vineyard multiple times through the growing season. And he would cradle those grapes in his hands. And he would cut back just a leaf and just a branch so that every grape and every cluster got just the right amount of light and the right amount of air for maximum fruitfulness and maximum flavor. When he began to describe that, I began to have a reorientation in my mind That when God is doing his pruning in our lives, his hands are all over us. He is cradling us. His eyes are on us. And he is cutting us back that we may produce maximum flavor and maximum fruitfulness in the kingdom of God. And I thought, God, if that is what you mean by pruning, then have your way with me. Can we all say that together, the words on the screen? Have your way with me. You online, have your way with me. But you see, when you look in this text, the other imagery that comes to mind is not just pruning, it's also the call to abiding. And I always thought that that abiding was kind of this picture that as long as there is this vine and these branches and these grapes, and as long as everything stays connected, that it's all going to be okay. 
and we are connected to Jesus. And while that is true, as I began to understand viticulture and the art of science of growing grapes, I began to understand that call to abide in a whole new way. Because I always thought that if I wanted to grow a vineyard that I would use seeds for grapes. And Christoph corrected me and he said, no, you actually use shoots. And those of you who are ever considering church planting or ministry starting or launching an off-profit or even a business, pay attention. Because you use the shoots of previous vines. You use the wisdom and the strength from what has been. And you go through that first year and you plant those shoots and they will start to grow up. And at the end of that year, you go through and you cut them back. The second year, they're going to grow up even taller. And at the end of that year, you cut them back again. On the third year, they're going to grow up and they're going to start to produce grapes, but you don't take them. You cut them back again. And it won't be until year four that those vines grow up and they start to produce a harvest. And then you will bring them in as the venter. You will harvest, you will process, you will bottle. But it won't be until year seven that you get to taste the very first fruits of your labor. And because of the high cost of land in Napa Valley, it will take 14, 16, sometimes 18 years to reach a financial break-even point. But once the hard work and the investment is done in that vineyard, it will continue to produce grapes for 30, 50, even 70 years. When Christoph explained that, I began to understand the long-term perspective that God takes with you and with me. Because I don't know about you, but in the midst of this pandemic in particular, I have thought, man, why am I not more productive? Anyone else here? Why am I not more productive? Why am I not more fruitful? And it's like the Holy Spirit is whispering to you and to me, do you not know, have you not heard that the harvest that I'm going to bring forth in your life, it may not be for another six months, two years, five years, seven years, but will you answer the call to abide in me daily? To which we say, Father, you are the master vintner. Altogether, have your way with me. One more time, have your way with me. You see, that call to abide is not just what is happening above the soil. It turns out that it's also what is happening underneath the soil. Did you know that there is a winery over in France called Chateau Lafitte in which they grow their vines in 75% gravel? And there are days that the vintner will go out and he will expect those vines and he will look and he will say it is not rocky enough and he will actually take a rock and he will place it next to the base of that vine because he knows it is that rock it is that hard place that will force the vine to become stronger it will force the roots to go deeper to reach different levels of minerals which create an incredibly distinct flavor and I don't know about you guys but I know I have rocks in my life anyone else Anybody else know that there's like one big rock that seemed to descend on planet Earth in 2020? We have those difficult areas, both large and small. And much like you, some of those rocks I have cried out, if not 100, if not 200, if not 500 times, begging God, God, will you remove that difficult place? For some of you, it is the prodigal son or daughter who you have cried out to God, please bring them home. 
For others of you, it is the financial stress in your personal life and your business that is crushing you. For some of you, it is the news of the diagnosis and whatever that thing is, that rock in your life, you cry out and it, it doesn't seem to budge, at least not on the time frame that you want it to. And it is like the Holy Spirit is whispering to you and to me, do you not know, have you not heard that that rock, that hard area, that difficult place, that is the very thing that I will use to produce the flavor of my son, Jesus Christ, in you. To which we say all together, have your way with me. He is the master Vintner. The other food that I wanted to highlight today is one that often appeared on my table as a kid, and perhaps some of you, and, and, uh, during Thanksgiving, and that food was the olive. Now, did anybody else have, like, at Thanksgiving, when a bowl of olives would suddenly emerge on the table? Anyone in here? How about online? Okay, there's four of you. Excellent, excellent. Okay, so the rest of you are thinking, what kind of family did you grow up in? But for me, this was so exciting at Thanksgiving because I love this food because it was the one time of the year that I could actually have permission to play with my food. And so I would pop the olives on every finger and be able to do a puppet show and then at the end go ahead and eat them. It was absolutely delightful. Now I also know that in a room this size and for as many of you as watching online, that honestly, I mean, there are people who don't like olives. And if that is you, I just want to let you know you hurt my heart. You do. You do. But I'd also argue that if I were to, to take some olive oil and some fresh garlic and basil and pull out a loaf of artisanal bread or gluten-free and we were to dip that into the oil, perhaps, perhaps you would consider taking another look at the olive and its oil. But in the Bible, if you look, you will discover almost 300 mentions of olives and olive yards and olive oil. And I didn't grow up, having grown up in Florida and North Carolina and Colorado and now Leif and I living in Utah, like we didn't have any exposure to olive trees. I don't know if you guys did, but, but we didn't. And so in order to better understand them, Leif and I traveled to a remote island off the coast of Croatia to help a family who had had olive trees in their family for hundreds of years. And so we arrive, and we're the typical Americans with our two big suitcases, and we end up climbing in our hostess's car, Natalia, and it's like a jelly bean-sized car, and we're all like stuffed in there. And we go to our house and get a good night's sleep, and the next morning we rise early to go pluck olives. And I remember we drove the backyards in this little Croatian island until finally we came around one turn, and it was like olivedom, olives in all directions. She pulled over to the side of the road and she opened her trunk and she pulled out our tools and they were pretty basic. It, it was a couple of five gallon buckets and a couple of old blue crinkly blue tarps. And, and so we started climbing up this rocky mountainside and as we go towards one particular tree, I see some rustling on the top and I'm thinking, what is that? You know, bears, lions, tigers, oh my. And suddenly a 70 year old, woman who is short, or we'll just call her height-challenged, descends. And this turns out to be Natalia's mom. And all of a sudden, she looks at me and she goes, Magritte! 
And I feel like I'm caught up in some sort of like Greek wedding movie and I'm like, mama! <laughs> and she shows us how to pluck olives. And what you do is you have the tarps around the base of the olives in case any drop, you don't lose that precious droop and the oil with inside, inside of it. And what you do is once you've got the tarps down, you've got your five-gallon bucket. And you reach up in the branch and you massage it down. And I watched Mama do this. And as she did, it was like plop, 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 plop right into the bucket. Well, I'm thinking, I got this. And so I reach up, and, and all of a sudden, like, leaves are flying, and there's twigs flying, and the olives are just, like, going off the tarp. And she looks at me, and she goes, <laughs> And what Natalia explained was that you have to be careful of how much you prune and how much you cut back those little branches, because if you cut back too many, it will actually impede next year's olive harvest. And, and so we're doing this day after day, and I'm not quite sure when exactly it happened, but somewhere along the way, Mama becomes convinced that if she will just speak to us loud enough in Croatian, we will suddenly understand. The only problem is no Ablo Croatian. And so I remember one particular afternoon when Mama comes up to my six foot eight husband Leif and she is just yelling at him with all of her might. And then finally she stops mid-sentence and she walks up to him and she just wraps her little arms around his legs. And that is when we discovered that Mama loved Leif the most <laughs> because he was the tallest and he could reach the branches that no one else could. But there is something that happens when you pick olives six, eight, ten hours a day. Your lower back starts to hurt. The legs and the muscles, they just tighten up. These become like just knots right in your shoulders. And as you're picking, you're brushing up against the branches. And so you're getting little cuts all over. And yet, you know what I noticed? When I came home at night, it looked like my hands had been soaking all day at a world-class spa. You see, God designed the olive and its oil and even its leaves with antioxidants, antibacterial properties, anti-inflammatories, so that even as you are doing the work, God's healing is soaking in. And I say that specifically for some of you here today, that you've been on the front lines in hospitals, in schools, in your communities, in this church, working and serving, and you may be tired and beat down, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, God's healing is still soaking in. But if you start to look for olives and oil in the Bible, you will discover that the primary place that olive oil is used in the Old Testament is for anointing. And I got this olive oil at a very famous aisle. This is the Isle de Kirkland. <laughs> My favorite store. And when people were anointed in the Old Testament, what was interesting is it wasn't really like today when it's like a little dab will do you. No, when they were anointed, the oil would run down their hair, down their faces, down their beards, on to their bellies. And who was called to be anointed? It was primarily the kings and the priests. And when they were anointed, the light would often hit that oil and it would reflect, depicting the very favor of God. And what were those kings and those priests called to do? 
They were called to bring healing to the land. And so you and I, we should not be surprised that when Jesus comes along, he is called the Messiah, which means the anointed one. And on the night of his arrest, he could have gone anywhere, but he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, meaning the Garden of the Olive Pressed. And he walks in this place. We know that it was an X marks the spot kind of place appointed by God. It didn't just spring up overnight. How do we know that? Because most olive trees take 13, 14, 15 years for, to produce a good harvest. And so here is Jesus, the anointed one, walking in the olive yard and likely goes to the center where the olive press is. Why is the olive press in the center of the olive yard? Because when olives get ripe, they're super heavy. And so you want to carry them the shortest distance in order to process them. And so here is Jesus likely next to this olive press. And if you've never seen one in antiquity, it is likely two large stones which are on top of each other. And the top one is turned as the olives are fed in. And as they do, all of a sudden the olive oil comes out because it is the writhing and the wrestling of those olives as they are crushed. So, Jesus, the anointed one in the olive yard next to the olive press. He too is writhing and wrestling under the pressure. Under the pressure of what? Under the pressure of the torment and brutality that he knows that he will face. The trauma, the emotional anguish, the crushing weight of that cross which is to come. And even as he rises and he wrestles, it is not oil that drops from his forehead. It is actually droplets of blood. And yet it is in that place that he says, not my will, but yours be done. And he rises up and he faces the cross. And three days later, he rises with resurrection and healing power in his midst. And so, you and I, you and I should not be surprised when in the book of James, it asks this question. It asks, are any of you sick? Are any of you wrestling with mental health, anxiety, the weight of depression? The diagnosis of bipolar? Are any of you sick in your body? The diagnosis that doctors can't even give a name to? Their early onset dementia? The Lou Gehrig's disease? The fibromyalgia? The aches and pains? Are any of you sick? Then, you should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Why did God choose oil, and specifically olive oil, as a symbol of healing rather than anything else? I mean, he could have chosen milk. He, he could have chosen any other mud. And yet he chooses olive oil. 
And my suspicion is that God chose that because he knew that the healing properties were already embedded in from the beginning of time. But I think the second reason that he did that is he wanted us to remember every time we are anointed, when we gather around the table, when we cook with olive oil, he wanted to remind us of what Christ did in the garden and that he longs to rise up in our lives with healing in his midst. And sometimes I know there are people in here who hurt. I get it, I live in chronic pain. But can I encourage you that just because God is not healing you in one area does not mean that he is not healing you in 10,000 others. A number of years ago, I was diagnosed with a really aggressive form of cancer. Some people get cancer and it's like a, it's like a mini snack and I kind of got like the supersized meal and it was radiation and chemotherapy and five surgeries and just by the end I was just a, a, a physical wrecked mess. They brought me to the edge of death, which is what they do when you're fighting cancer often and, and try not to tip you over. And I remember in the midst of that struggle, it was just, it was so overwhelming. And what was really hard about it, and those of you who know crisis or perhaps are in one now know this, that often when there is crisis, that it becomes the center point of everybody's conversation with you. So you come to church, and that's what people talk to you about. And when it's often the last thing you really want to talk about because you're exhausted by it. And so I remember in the midst of that, as I'm praying and I'm, I'm just being crushed by the weight of it all, I was just praying. I was like, God, what do I do? What do I do? And I sense the Holy Spirit whisper into my spirit, you can either cling to the crisis or you can cling to Christ, but you do not have arms big enough for both. I said, Lord, I want to cling to you. I do. I've been following you for a long time, but I don't even know how. How do I do that when I'm too weak to even just walk across my living room? And I sense the Lord bring a familiar passage to mind from the book of Jeremiah 29, 11, that talks about the fact that God has a hope and a future for us. And I thought, God, I want to I cling to that because it doesn't feel like I have a hope or a future right now. Some of you know what that feels like right now. You do. And, and so I'm there, and, and I'm like, okay, so I need a hope and a future, and I can't do much. What can we possibly do? How can I put a pin in the fact that God has a hope and a future? I remember looking around our house at these like 1980s peach-colored walls and thinking, man, some new paint could do a lot of good. So my husband goes down to the hardware store and buys some paint and starts painting. And all of a sudden, when we go to church in our community, people have something to talk to us about other than the crisis. And then I remember looking at my husband and I go, honey, you as a caretaker, you need to put a pin in the fact God has a hope and a future for you. I said, what do you want to do? And he says, you know, I've always wanted to swim Alcatraz. I was like, what? <laughs> Buddy, the goal here is to stay alive. Na, 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 na. But all of a sudden, he starts swimming, and he starts training to go swim Alcatraz. And all of a sudden, everybody in the community has something else to talk to him about. What are your times? How are you feeling about it? How are you studying? What's going on? And so all of a sudden, he's training, and, and we got a forward movement in our lives, trusting that God is going to provide this, and it's just going to, it's just going to happen. We're just moving forward, trusting there's a hope and a future. And then he goes to race day, and he goes out, and he swims. And do you know what he finishes? Fourth in his age category. I know, I thought that was awesome. But not for my husband. He was like, mm-mm, nope, nope. I'm gonna swim this race until I come up in the top three in my age category. 
I was like, okay, no, 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 no. Okay, buddy. So year two, goes out and swims. Guess what he finishes? Fourth. Year three, goes out and swims. Guess what he finishes? Fourth. We stay up like year five. I was like, please, baby Jesus, we need a miracle. We need a miracle. So he goes out and he swims, and you know what happens? He finished first in his age category. But that, that wasn't the real win. Because before we went on that trip, he just felt led by the Spirit. He was like, hey, I need to bring a copy of Taste and See to give to someone, which isn't his normal. We're like, okay, cool. So we go, and it's the night before the race, and he goes out to kind of check the waves and the tide, and he's looking out at the race and kind of how things are going to affect. And, and all of a sudden, he notices two ladies sitting over here, and, and he walks over, and, and he just starts to introduce himself and talk. And I'm like, I'm the wife. I'm the wife. It's not weird. And does anybody else have that? And, and so these ladies say, we're not swimming. It's actually a friend out there. And so she comes up to shore eventually, and, and they say, you know, this is our new friend Leif. And, and she looks at me and she goes, I know you, you're Margaret Feinberg, and I've done one of your Bible studies, Fight Back with Joy. And I was like, cool, cool, okay. And, and so we started this conversation, and Leif kind of takes her under his wing, explains how the tides and the waves and everything affect. And the next morning, Leif says, you know, I think that's the lady who's supposed to get the book. I was like, okay. So goes up and, and meets with her early and you're know, talking, walking with her and, and just says, hey, you know what? I just felt like I was supposed to bring a book here and I think that book is supposed to go to you. And all of a sudden, she starts crying. There's tears running down her cheeks and I'm like, girlfriend, that is not a good idea. That will fog your goggles. <laughs> Problem for the race. <laughs> and then she starts explaining how in the previous year she had been through a brutal divorce and custody battle. And in the midst of that, when she was so beat down, somebody looked at her and said, what are you doing to put a pin in the fact that God has a hope and a future for you? And she said, you know, I've always liked to swim. So she went out, started 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and said, you know what, I need, I need a goal, I need something out in the future. And so she comes to swim Alcatraz. On that day, five years before we had come to do the same thing. And I just looked at her and I said, friend, I just want you to know that there are 899 other people in this race. And God wanted you to have this book, but really it's not about that. What he really wanted was he wanted you to know that he knows your name, he knows your number, he has not forgotten you with you, and he is with you every step of the way. More tears. Fogging. <laughs> she went out and swam all the nerves, she came back. Huge accomplishment. Recently, I got a fun box of candies and treats from her in Canada, so stinking fun. But there we are, five years apart from crisis, right? We were there the first time, barely getting oxygen into our lungs from all that had happened in our lives. And some of you are there right now. You are watching and you are seeing and you're like, that is me. It is just too much. Whatever category of life or struggle it may be. And if that is you, can I challenge you to put a pin in the fact that God has a hope and a future for you. It may be as simple as planning a getaway with some friends. It may be a, a restaurant celebration. It may be some new paint. And if you're cuckoo enough, it may be swimming Alcatraz.
But others of you, even in this season, you look back at the other crises that you have walked through and you may be one year or two year or three year or five years or 20 years out. And the question is, I know we're all a little beat down by the pandemic. Let's just be honest about that, okay? It's been hard. There's a lot of friction in life right now. But even now, you may have the strength to do something to help others rally around that person who is in the midst of the crisis and breathe life and breathe hope and help them put a pin in the fact that God has a future and a hope for them. And so my hope and my prayer for you is that you will discover that not only is God's healing designed to flow to you, it is designed to flow through you. And that as you step out with the healing hands of Christ, the very favor of God rests on you. Why does God use so much metaphor and imagery and basic food in order to speak to us? Why does he get his hands literally dirt, dirty in the dirt of the earth? I think one reason is because he wants to remind us, no matter what table that we gather around, that he is the center of life. He is the source of life. He is the sustainer of life. He is the provider of life and all we need for sustenance. But I also think he does it because there are times in life we need to know God in all of these ways. We need to remember the grape and the fact that God will prune us. But even as he does, his hands are always all over us. He wants to invite us to abide in him. And he wants us to remember that just like the olive and his oil, that the healing of Christ is alive and true to you today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a God who helps us taste and see your goodness that we may bring the flavor of heaven down to earth. Father, may the scripture come alive to us in a whole new way this week as we see how you use foodstuff to reveal your heart and purpose for us. We are so grateful to be your kids. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we thank Margaret for being with us today? Thanks so much. Yeah, what a, what a great reminder of God's presence in our life, his desire to, to be with us, to abide with us. If you're interested in meeting Margaret, feel free to uh, come say hi after the service or uh, talk to her about getting her book. If you want to grab one of her books, um, just uh, experience some of the other metaphors that can be found in food. Remember, God led his people through the wilderness to a land flowing with milk and honey. And there it is again, milk and honey, those metaphors of food that God has for you and for me. By the way, in case you've never um, maybe had elders anoint you with oil, just know every uh, service, uh, third door on your left is the hearth room. There's always elders available there. We will often have people prayed for there. Uh, we love to just put a name with a face there, but we also will pull you aside or set up a time to have the elders uh, pray and anoint you. We've been doing that uh, since the church began. In fact, one of our first services here 10 years ago, we actually, after we prayed together for this building, and we anointed this building. We actually had elders and exec board members at each spot down the aisle. And uh, I think the first time we did it, we had like 100 people uh, uh, who were being anointed and ran into the next service. So we moved it to the hearth room. But if you ever want to be anointed with oil to be prayed with or prayed for, listen to. It's available every week in the hearth room. 
All right, thanks for being here. We'll see you next week. And again, come say hi to Margaret if you want to uh, get to know her a little bit more. Thanks so much.